Today we're beginning a, a new series, an eight-week series on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so where that is, it's located in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. You can turn in your pew Bibles if you didn't bring a Bible with you so you can read along. And it's on page 962 in your pew Bible. So the, the Sermon on the Mount, for, for those that are unfamiliar, it's chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and it's this uh, uh, teachings from Jesus that are all gathered together in this one place that, that we're told he goes on, on top of this mountain, does all of this teaching at once. And so this is, this is one sermon given by Jesus, and we're going to spend eight weeks kind of doing a 30,000-foot flyover. We won't get too much into the weeds, yet there will be times that we will nosedive straight down into those weeds and hang out there for a minute as the Scripture calls us to do so. But our Scripture today is Matthew chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 12. And there it's written, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. If you would please join me in prayer. O holy God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Matthew does a, a decent job there in the first verse of setting the scene up for us. What, what we have had happen through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus has become a rock star. Right? He is Mr. Miracle Man. He is the healer of great renown in all of Judea and Israel. People are traveling to come see Jesus heal people and perform miracles. And so we're told this large crowd gathers around Jesus. They're there for the healings. They're there for the miracles. And, and then we're told Jesus does this thing. He withdraws to the mountain. He goes up into the mountain. This sermon on this mount, this great teaching of Jesus, doesn't occur in front of a great crowd. Rather, he retreats away from it. And so those that are there just to see Jesus do fun stuff, don't follow him up. Those that follow him up, it says, are his disciples. It's those that want to learn from Jesus. Those who have faith in Jesus are the ones following him up this mountain to learn from Jesus. That he's doing more than just performing miracles. That he is their Lord and their Savior. 
And, and so a, a common mistake for us to make with the Sermon on the Mount over these courses of, of, of chapters is that we turn it into a checklist. Right? This, Jesus preaches this, so therefore we must do it. And if we do it, and we're good enough, and we get enough checks on completing all of these, therefore we get into heaven. However, that's not how this works at all. But rather, because Jesus is preaching to his disciples, he's preaching to believers, he's telling them what good fruit actually looks like in a believer in Jesus Christ. When Paul says, you will know them by their fruit, Jesus here gives us three chapters of fruit to know them by. This is what a disciple, this is what a believer in Christ looks like. It is a description of those who are called to be ambassadors and salt and light to the world for Jesus' sake. It's not a to-do list to get to done to get to heaven. The only way to heaven is through Christ, and it's Christ who accomplishes that for us. And immediately, we encounter the Beatitudes. Jesus just gets right to it, doesn't he? He doesn't, he doesn't have a, a, a funny joke to begin the sermon with, right? We didn't see him dismiss kids to kids' church. Those who came up the mountain are the ones who get taught. There wasn't a, a, a self-deprecating story about himself and his family that, that suddenly makes Jesus more relatable. No, Jesus, with all of his authority, just gets right into the teaching. And he gets with what we call these beatitudes, these eight statements of blessing. And over the course of my life, that's getting longer by the day, I've heard a number of sermons and studies, you know, be attitudes. They divide it into two different words, be attitudes, and add a cool tagline like, how to approach life and be blessed. Man, it couldn't be further from the truth. This isn't a list of attitudes we are to have so that we can be blessed by God, but rather I suggest that this is a summary description of the man or woman who has come from being a lost sinner and born again. That in these eight Beatitudes, we see the process of being born again. We see exactly what that transformation looks like and takes hold as he describes to believers how they are. Now, we notice that he says blessed, and he says blessed nine times in eight Beatitudes. And it's not hashtag blessed. It's not something we're putting on social media. And, and, and in fact, in Greek, it means happy or bliss is the word it, that, that we translate with it. But it's also not, it's, it's not happy birthday, right? It's not that kind of happy, like, like you're giddy because it's your special day and you're going to get cake later. And it's also not a philosophical happiness, right? It's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But rather, it, it's, it's what... Paul bases his letter to the Philippians on. It's a foundational joy that comes no matter the circumstance in the world you face today. See, Paul got his teachings from Jesus. Paul learned from Christ himself. Paul wasn't out there making this up, writing to churches. He got this from Jesus, that our happiness, that there's a foundational joy that comes with being in Christ. 
And there's nothing in this world that can shake that away from us. No present circumstances, good or bad, that ever moves that happiness, that blessedness, that joy away. And and so as we understand Jesus preaching here, he's saying, happy are those. Blessed are those, right? So this foundational joy is the blessing, right? It's not, it's not having stuff. It's not being around kids. It's not being able to go and do a vacation as a family, right? It's a foundational joy to our living that comes with being in Christ. And so as we dive into this, There's eight sayings. They're not eight tweets. They're not standalone by themselves, but rather they have this unique interrelationship with one another. Uh, The best way I can describe it is they're all Lego blocks. And when you build upon them, when you come to the completion, you have what you see as a believer in Christ. They build upon one another, and if you take one out... You're missing a, a complete believer. The, the believer is not complete without all eight of these blocks. It is a summary description of someone who is in Christ. And, and so if we look at it that way and we understand it to be a description of believers, then we can take these first three Beatitudes, and, and I'll read them here again to you so we can get started. It's, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These three, when when we see this group together, we see that these three deal with the progress a man or woman makes when they come initially to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? We, we can begin to understand this, that there's a realization that they are sinners and in deep need of God's grace. The first one articulates it in this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit, he's not talking about in poverty in that day and age that they can't afford their next meal that's coming to them, but it's a poverty of spirit. And in this poverty of spirit, they, they come to a realization of a poverty in spirit, meaning that, that we are but sinners, worthy only of condemnation, deserving nothing more than that. Right? We, we don't get to go to, to Christ thinking, hey, I've earned, I deserve entrance into heaven. Let me show you my checklist. It's not how it works. It's not a scales where you balance out more good than bad. Our entrances to heaven is based on Jesus's merit and his complete and full work on the cross alone. That is the entrance into heaven. But, but this blessed are the poor in spirit, it's, it's the sinner who comes to a realization that I am impoverished in my soul. I have sinned against a great and holy God, our creator, the one who knows us. And and we go to him in our absolute nakedness then to beg him for grace. Gets really hard to do, though. 
right? Because there's a couple of things that happen. Once we realize that we're sinners in need of grace, that, that, that we are sinful and we deserve condemnation, there are some things that, that we come to the realization. We have an option. We can turn towards God or we can just keep on going. The way I'm living my life is doing me just fine. I understand it may not be God's thing, but it's my thing, right? What is this old book written by some guys some time ago going to tell me how to live in 2022, right? It, it comes in, in other things that sometimes we try and be helpful to friends. We can say, well, you've worked hard enough. You deserve it. Do you? Or, or, or my favorite one now is, you just do you, boo. I told you I'm getting old. It sounds really... The kids would say that sounds really cringe again. But yeah, you just do you, boo. So there's that choice, right? We, now we've recognized we're, we're sinful. We're, we're poor in spirit. We've sinned against God. We don't care. We just keep on living. If we care, we turn towards God, but it requires this coming to him naked, right? It requires this level of vulnerability that we struggle with. We struggle being vulnerable before God. We struggle being vulnerable with our spouse and with our kids and with our family. We struggle to be vulnerable with ourselves. Folks, I'm telling you, we are good. We are real good at convincing ourselves we are just fine like we are. We're good at hiding the stuff that we know God doesn't desire for us and stuffing it deep down, putting a black cloth over it and being like, yeah, I've got that well hidden, right? Like, and, and then we're going to go to God and be like, hey, here I am. And he's like, yeah, we're going to deal with this stuff. And you're like, oh. You knew? Yeah, he knew. He created us. But we struggle with that level of vulnerability of our struggles and our sins, even within our own self. But here, he says, the believer recognizes they're poor in spirit and then says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't stop. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. First, we, we recognize our impoverished spirit, our, 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 our sinful nature, and then comes mourning over our sin. This is a good way to, to describe repentance, right? right? Repentance in, involves not only recognizing our sin, but, but also that it breaks our heart that we've sinned against God. There's the, the contemporary Christian song um, that, that we've sung a number of times, asking God, break our heart for what breaks yours. And there's a list of things that are going on in this world today that, that yes, those circumstances do break hearts, but, but what breaks God's heart is sin. And if our own sin doesn't mortify us and bring us into mourning, then what we've done is we've started stepping away and continued on down that path where we're just going to do you, 
right? But here Jesus is describing what happens to believers. Recognize an impoverished soul, begin to mourn and have heartbreak over the sin they've committed against God. Right? Paul, it's Paul who writes, I'm the chief sinner. Nobody has sinned more than me. Martin Luther would write later in his life that the smaller sins that more he matured bothered him more than the bigger sins when he was immature. That the closer we grow to Christ, the closer we get to God, the more holy he is, the more we realize how far off we are. And this is what happens to believers, the mourning of our sin. And he says, they shall be comforted. He goes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not as it is today. He, this is the second coming, the new earth, right? The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. This is what he's talking about here. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Because not only does it take uh, being born again and recognizing our sin and then being brokenhearted with our sin, but meekness is a level of humility to go before God, the great creator of the universe, and say, I am but a sinner. And he gives us grace. It's having the humility to go before God, right? It's, it's, it's Paul who says that there is no boasting for those who are in Christ. But we are to come in this humble spirit. We are to be meek, recognizing the only thing we deserve is condemnation when we come before God in the throne of grace. And Jesus says, for they shall inherit the earth. Because the new earth will be filled with believers, with righteousness. Are you guys following along here? Are you tracking along with me? A little few head nods help me so we don't get stuck up here. Okay, so this fourth beatitude, this is, this is where we get into the crux of the situation, right? So we have, we have the person, they've recognized their sin, they're brokenhearted over their sin, and, and they've repented and turned and come in all humility before God of grace, begging for mercy. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, or they shall be filled, depending on your translation." When a man or a woman, we're told, cries out to the God of grace for grace, they shall be satisfied. Not because we're calling out for it, but our satisfaction comes from the complete and sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's Martin Luther who writes about the great exchange that happens upon the cross. That, that on the cross, as Jesus hangs there, he takes on all of our sin, past, present, and future. And Jesus hangs and takes on all of the sin. And what happens is Jesus puts his righteousness onto us. So that therefore we will be reconciled before a holy and just God. That as we stand before God, he no longer sees our sin because that is carried by Jesus. But he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. And therefore, we are adopted as his children. 
For those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are they. Then these final four Beatitudes. These final four Beatitudes. We've seen the rebirth process here. Now they've come and they've received grace from God. And these final four give a description of men and women who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In, in, In life after that grace. He says, blessed are the merciful for they shall have mercy. Seems pretty self-explanatory, right? God has been so merciful and so gracious to us. Therefore, believers are the most compassionate and the most merciful in all of the world. No one can outgrace believers. You shall know them by their fruit. Disciples get testy in other places. Well, how many times should we forgive? You've heard it say, forgive them seven times. He goes, but I tell you seven times 77, right? And then some, and then more. The most compassionate and most merciful because we, knowing our poor spirit, have been given grace unmeasurable. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul, in one of his letters, as he's talking about salvation and how we've been saved from sin, and because the only thing we contributed to our own salvation was the amount of sin we brought to it, and, and because we have so much sin that needs to be forgiven, God's glory is shown to be so great. He says, so... Shall we go, therefore, and keep sinning? By no means. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. For those, you know, there's a difference. Salvation comes, and are you to be perfect immediately? No. No, you're not. Okay, so, so once you're saved, that's not the moment you are perfected. Our, our, our perfection, which is called glorification, comes when, when we pass from this life to all eternity. And then we are glorified and made perfect in that time. And so we're not expected to be perfect now, but we are to be grace in process. Which means we're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to trip. And, and remember, we're battling against powers and principalities, right? There, there's demons and there's the evil one there tempting us all the time. We're battling our own flesh because we haven't been made perfect yet. Stumbling and tripping happens. Here Jesus is talking about blessed are the pure in heart. And when Paul says, shall we go on sinning? And he says, by no means. He says, if we continue to intentionally enter into the sin that we knew was against God, and we keep doing it on purpose, our heart is not pure. We keep on sinning on purpose. You shall know them by their fruit. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Throughout all of the ages, this, this verse here, this text has been used to be anti-war and, and, and to be against the fighting and to be a, a, against guns and militia and, and anything else you want to go into it. But I have to ask you, who are we at war with when we're sinners? The scripture says we're at enmity with God. We are enemies of God when we are full of our sin, when we're unrepentant and unregenerate, we're not born again, we are at enmity with God. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This means that a peacemaker is someone who constantly and consistently brings others who are at war with God and brings them to Jesus Christ, the only one who can reconcile us to God and bring peace in their life. And then finally, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those who have been adopted by God, Jesus suggests. Because we're different now. The way he describes believers is different than the way the world behaves and acts. We've become enemies of the world. We'll be persecuted. He, he expounds upon this beatitude. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And does he say, therefore, when you're persecuted... We need you to gather up and rally and complain and say, woe is me, I'm being persecuted. Does he tell us, go and be keyboard warriors and be like, look at all this persecution that's happening to me. Check out this persecution that's happening. No, Jesus tells us the description of believers in Christ, those who are in Christ Jesus, is when we are persecuted, he says, rejoice and be glad. He doesn't say go complain to anyone who will listen, but rejoice and be glad in the persecution. He says because they hate you because they hate him. Because we're no longer playing the game the rest of the world and the enemy has set up. We're now enemies of the world. So rejoice. Rejoice because you look different. You behave different. You're supposed to be different. We were called from the world to God, not so that we could continue to look like the world, but so that we could look more and more like his people fashioned around Jesus Christ. And so here, Jesus in this sermon, he begins right here. And, and these aren't eight different descriptions of disciples and eight different ways that you can live out your faith. But rather, this, I suggest, is a full summary of what it is to be in Christ when we see ourselves and take stock in the mirror of who we really are. You know what would be most helpful, though? If we could compare it with something. Well, if this is what a Christian looks like, what does it then look like to be in the world? 
Jesus doesn't do that here in this section in Matthew, but in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, beginning in verse 24, it's Jesus who says this. And, and remember, so the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching to believers. Now here in Luke chapter 6, he's talking to unbelievers, people of the world, right? So he's talking to them when he says this. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. The world scoffs at believers who are described by these beatitudes. And when their scoffing doesn't work, they then attempt to take the beatitudes and Jesus is teaching and just make them into a moral law for good living so to water it down, because the gospel, folks, is offensive. To say that we are sinners and deserving of condemnation and there's nothing we can do to change that, it is only by God's grace that we are saved, is offensive. What do you mean I can't save myself? What do you mean I can't just be good enough? What do you mean I can't live my life the way I want? As long as I'm a good person, I get to heaven. These are offensive things, and the world scoffs at it. And so for you, dear Christian, I suggest that these Beatitudes describe just the life of the greatest witness we can give to Jesus Christ in this world. Does it describe you? Amen.